Welcome back to Footnotes with Dr. Tony Caffey. I'm Adam Castellino, and with me as always is Pastor Tony. It's good to see you, Tony. Hey, Adam. Hey, I have video evidence this last week okay. that you were actually involved in dressing a deer. Did that Did that? or did oh, that yeah. not happen? I had a very little role, but yeah, we had um, a group of us guys meet every third Thursday at, the, at, a, at Tom's house and... Just so happened that a deer was taken out as is necessary. Okay. And, you know, he wanted to keep some of the meat. So uh, I was witness of them checking on YouTube because none of us were expert hunters in that group. And so they skinned it. So this is a new experience for you? Well, definitely for me. Okay. It wasn't as intense as I thought it would be. I didn't get too close. You know, get a couple whiffs that were not great. Unpleasant. So this week we're continuing through Hebrews chapter 2, and your message covered Hebrews verses 10 through 18. Yeah. Um, the big brother verses, you had three points yeah. about different aspects of Christ's role. Um, we, we hinted at it last time, but then you went into more uh, detail this week about how Christ is our brother. Yeah. And you told a story about how at first or at some point you were kind of taken out of you know context when you're thinking about Jesus as our brother, yeah, because we think of him as our Lord, our Shepherd, our God, our King, mm-hmm. but not our brother. And I remember recently having a similar experience because uh, reading J.I. Packer's book Knowing God. There's a past a chapter where he talks about that, and I had kind of the same thought. I'm like, oh, he's not our brother, but then he, he points to Hebrews and he points to other passages where even Christ refers to himself. After the resurrection in Matthew 28.10 and John 20.17, he refers to the disciples as his brothers. And I was like, oh, well, if Christ said it, then it must be true. And then even Paul in Romans 8.29 says he'd be the firstborn of many brethren. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it's re- reemphasized in Hebrews um, chapter 2. And so you said he's our purifying big brother. And the passage says that he sanctifies. Yeah us and he's the sanctifier Mm -hmm. so we know that a part of that sanctification is how he took our sin on the cross but in your view what are other ways that our big brother is sanctifying or purifying us well he sent his holy spirit so that's key right uh hagiazo is the greek word for sanctify and and this language shows up again and again in the new testament Oftentimes, in light of what the the scriptures do in terms of how they, uh, you know, make us holy, our obedience to them, the scriptures make us holy. The Holy Spirit is actively working to hagiazo us as uh, as followers of Christ. So, um, yeah. So I think Jesus. You know, John has that section in there where Jesus says, I go to be at the right hand of God the Father, but I'm sending my Holy Spirit mm-hmm. as my emissary, if you want to use that that term. he There is this delegation of duties among the Trinity where you have Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Spirit's role, um, as it's described in John, as we see it fleshed out in the book of Acts, as it even shows up in the epistles, is to indwell us to sanctify us, to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit, to convict us of sin, to conform us to the image of Christ. So I think a large part of that in terms of the way that Jesus actively does that in the New Testament world is through 
his Holy Spirit. There's even talk about the bride language, Ephesians 5, where we're being purified and sanctified as the bride of Christ. Um, and that's, you know, you might say by proxy through the Holy Spirit, but Jesus active as well in terms of, um, you know, uh, applying the teaching that we have from him, uh, interceding for us on behalf of the Father. That has more to do with our, you know, our standing, the session before Christ, before, sorry, God the Father. But uh, yeah, I, I, I do want to uh, capture this idea as well, that, that Jesus as our big brother, that person that is close to us, that familial language that's used in, you mentioned it, in the Gospels and in Hebrews. Um, he's We can't be too chummy with big brother Jesus because mm -hmm. he is perfectly holy, because he is the sovereign of the universe, because... Yes, we're friends, and yes, we're we're siblings in that way, but we're not on par in terms right. of uh, our identity, who we are, our character, and we are becoming like him um, in 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 a lifelong pursuit of being more Christ-like, and and so keeping those things in tension. I think I even mentioned that on Sunday yeah. is 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 healthy for our relationship. We have a you know, a, a good understanding of, of the transcendent, perfecting power of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, he, he, he loves us. He's close to us. He cares about us. He was uh, very uh, friendly and, and kind and compassionate to those that he interacted with when he was on our earth. And so I think that's parallel in terms of our relationship with him, keeping those things in tension, Jesus' closeness to us, but also his transcendence will give us a healthy relationship with the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good way to put it, keeping in tension, because to the Jews at the time, they knew God as this lofty, mm -hmm. magnificent, almighty, on the mountains of Moses being. Mm -hmm. Now he comes down and they walk with him, they eat with him. So their whole re-education or relearning was that God can be close as well as mighty where today it might need to be the other way around the whole Jesus is my homeboy thing and yeah. overemphasizing that at the expense of understanding his majesty yeah and I, I think it's a problem for us in America where we're you know we like to bring everybody down to the level mm -hmm. right we don't do hierarchy we don't yep. you know we're a meritocracy you know <laughs> we don't have kings King George you know yeah. King all this stuff in England with the transition of power with the kings, you know, we could, couldn't could care less. Some people <laughs> care, but most of us couldn't care less yeah. about that. Um, so we we are a little too, you know, um, to familiar, familiarity braids contempt. Isn't mm -hmm. that how the old expression goes? Mm -hmm. Like a little too familiar chummy, with Jesus, yeah. too chummy. And whereas there are other settings, there are other places. Honestly, there are other denominations you grow up in which can be very stodgy which can be yeah maybe too much in terms of emphasizing god's transcendence and people don't have that real relational connection to mm -hmm. the lord uh not this isn't a poor reflection on my church but just maybe me as a kid i struggled with that as a as a kid mm. you know i didn't even like using the word jesus i thought hmm. you know i would only speak of him as the christ or the messiah hmm. jesus was just a little too close huh. And uh, I remember there was a a book I read, The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey, was really influential mm -hmm. on me. And then also there was a CD that came out uh, by Rich Mullins right before he died, um, where he talked about Jesus um, from start to finish. And, 
used language that was, you know, very personal, very relational, and it just captured my heart and helped me to find that balance in a better way. So, and I'm still striving for that balance even today after yeah. all these years of following the Lord. Yeah, I think calling it attention is a good thing because there are times when we need him to be the mighty, majestic God who's powerful to save, greater than our problems. And there are times where we need to understand he's close to us. He, we could call him a friend. We can have that fellowship with him. Yep. And both are true at the same time. But we as limited people sometimes need to understand those different aspects when we need them. And God is good enough to show that to us when we need it. Um so another thing you mentioned, and this might probably spur a lot of questions or speculation or, or wanting to learn more. Good. Is how you said both men and women are sons. Oh. And this is something that people might not be able to wrap their heads around, um, at least from the standpoint that you now we're used to understanding that men and women have different roles. Mm -hmm. And... You know, in our modern day, that gets blurred by our yeah. culture and even some <laughs> churches. And we don't like to talk about that. But the reality is that men and women have some distinct differences, some distinct purposes while we're on the earth. Mm -hmm. And men have a headship that's necessary. So the idea of them, of us being almost equal on a certain foundation might be hard for some people to grasp. But I'm thinking of some folks in our church who might have never really thought about that. You know, I'm a woman. I'm not a son. Or yeah. I'm a man. How could she be a son? So how can, you know, thinking about women how do, how can they understand that in a way not to get all jumbled up with their role as a woman here on the earth well there's there's metaphor and there's ontology right sure. and we need both of those yeah. so we need to be able to speak in metaphor of our relationship with the lord so we are the bride of christ we're um and that's the example that men have to come to terms with sure. you know i heard tommy nelson say once that uh before you can be a husband you need to be a bride <laughs> And he was saying how he was explaining Ephesians 5, this idea that, you know, we are actually married to Christ as the church, as a Christian. And so if you're not a genuine Christian, converted, following Christ, loving Christ, then you're not going to be a very good husband. Hmm. And, I, and I, that was a great way to put it. But I'll just tell you, when when I've shared that concept with some men, they struggle with that. Right. Um, you know, it just kind of feels effeminate or it just kind of strikes them as as unmasculine. Uh, but we need metaphor. We need to be able to speak in metaphor without, you know, thinking that somehow the metaphor trumps ontology. It doesn't. Men are men and women are women. And right. God, God goes to great extremes to explain that in the Bible. And so the problem we have in our modern day world is that people are, are aren't valuing ontology. It's not that they want to embrace metaphor. It's they want to alter reality. Sure. And that's not what uh, the author of Hebrews is doing. That's not what I'm trying to do. The son's language, really, and I, I think I got this from Grudem. I can't remember where I heard this because there was a lot of debate with the ESV about whether or not to translate sons as sons and daughters. Right. And I don't know, there might be some translations that do that, the New Living Translation, or, or use the term children. And, and I'm okay with that. I mean, I think that's fine. But in the first century world, you know, sonship was connected to inheritance. Mm -hmm. It just was. And, um, you know, that was even true, as I said this last Sunday, in Mother England 100 years ago. Just watch Downton Abbey. Just watch, yeah. Pride, just listen to Pride and Prejudice or read that book. You know, the the idea of how we figure out inheritance, those books and those movies are all about, like, we don't have a son. We don't have a son. Yeah. 
And so for a woman to understand her identity metaphorically as a son of God, as an heir, it's really wrapped up in that. I am a co-heir with Christ Jesus. So I'm not a second-class citizen in terms of eternity. There's not going to be a second tier in heaven where the men get the first tier and we're in the second tier. No, we are all, you know, there's even that passage in Galatians that talks about neither, you know, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. That doesn't mean that ontology is obliterated and there's no such thing between male and female anymore. No, he's talking about inheritance. He's talking about eternity. So uh, in that sense, you know, I encourage women to uh, embrace their identity as a son of God, like like I would, and mm-hmm. or you know to use the term daughter of God too is is perfectly acceptable as well. But however you frame it, understand that your inheritance, your co heirship with Christ Jesus, is bound up in that, and that's that's good. That's something to celebrate. Yeah, it's it's helpful to to separate ontology, what is literally true versus metaphorical concepts yep. that can be applied in our lives. Because a lot of people don't know the difference and they'll use stuff like this to disrupt the the literal, how God made us and they get confused. So that's very helpful. So the big focus of this passage and much of Hebrews and much of the gospel is that Jesus became our brother He took on flesh and blood in order to experience death on our behalf, what we call substitutionary atonement. Yes. And this is a concept that is foundational to the gospel, foundational to the new covenant, but it has come under attack by certain segments within the church. Mm -hmm. They do not like the idea of atonement as it's clearly written in scripture. They try to dance around it. Mm -hmm. They avoid the idea of the wrath of God. Yep. And they come up, they've come up with other explanations for why Jesus had to die, why, you know, the victor and all these different concepts, just to get around the fact that God punishes sin and that Jesus took our punishment. So obviously it's explored in more in depth throughout the book, but he obviously the writer emphasizes it here. Let's talk more about it. I would like you to address it. What thoughts you have, you know, the importance of this foundational truth and what we need to know as believers as we mature in our understanding. Yeah, they'll, they'll dance around it for sure. And the, the biggest issues they have scripturally involve, honestly, the book of Hebrews. Because, yeah. Hebrew, you know, Hebrews is expressly describing even the Old Testament sacrifices. You know, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. So they have issues with Hebrews, but they also have issues with the Old Testament. So you have to come at the Old Testament as symbolic or, sure. you know, maybe, you know, there are those who would who would add tiers, like this is a second tier level scripture versus mm. the New Testament, which is the part, you know, uh, the perfect example of of you know, God's revelation to us. I will say this. So there's, I think in the Orthodox world, Orthodox Christians, sin atoning has to be a part of the equation. Jesus paying for our sin. If you remove that, you're not really Christian. Yeah. And, you know, the Victor language, there's a few other different ideas out there yeah. that kind of talk about Jesus, you know, conquering death. A lot of it leads to universalism is what it leads to or, right. or some some variation of that. There is another perspective on this. I talked about propitiation this last Sunday, 
where people are buy into the sin atoning side of it, but the wrath averting side is the the one that they struggle with. Right. Just as an example of that, you know, the Bible Project, very famous mm-hmm. uh, uh, visual depictions of of you know the Old Testament, the New Testament. Good guys, they they do good work, and I even use some of their videos for uh, classes that I teach at Moody. But they're not real big on wrath averting that side of propitiation. They sure. want to focus just on the senatoting side of it and, and the idea that God is angry and pours out his anger on the Lord. And that's a part of the redemptive work um, is either something that they bypass or they don't see a lot of strong scriptural evidence for. So uh, I think they're wrong, you know, but I, I mean, I still think they're Christians. I still think mm. they have good material that, that we can produce. That, that, that they've produced that we can use as Christians. So uh, so I'll, I'll create three categories here. There, there's the category of those people who, uh, you know, deny sin atoning, deny, certainly deny wrath averting as an aspect of, of our salvation. So that's, that's a non-Christian view, really. Yeah. Then there's what you might call a middle position where it's, you know, they, they see the atonement for sin. They see blood is necessary for for sin. You know, in, in that passage of Hebrews, they see the connection even in the Old Testament world where we have the innocence of the animals now. You know, that is, uh, you know, foreshadowing Christ now that that's been fulfilled. Christ's death is once for all atonement. Okay, that they would hold to that. But then there's what you might say the more traditional, classical um Christian position, which not is not just involving sin atonement, but also wrath aversion. Yeah, and that's my view. I think that's the best way to understand propitiation. That links in really nicely with my Puritan forebears and mm-hmm. my Reformed heritage, dating back even to the the Church Fathers. So yeah. uh, that's where I stand. And and I, this might shock you, Adam, but I'm I'm pretty conservative in my theology. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I think one of the dangers. As you said, like if you drift away from what is plainly in the scripture about um, substitutionary atonement and the work of Christ on the cross, it feels like a lot of the people who try to dance around it or simply dismiss it, they just don't like the idea of repentance. And that's the cornerstone of faith. You, when you believe in Christ, the response is to repent. You acknowledge that you there is stuff in your life you need to get rid of, and Christ paid the punishment for you for that. So if you say you're a Christian, you need to make that act, that turning away, a new life. And it seems like if we move away from the wrath of God, I mean, that's critical, I think, to repentance, because yep. if it's it's if it brings God's wrath, then it's pretty bad. And if God hates it so much that he poured out this wrath on Christ so that you wouldn't have to suffer it, then maybe you need to get that out of your life, whatever it is. And that's the heart of repentance. That's the heart of being a disciple. That's why we're baptized. That's why we profess Christ is because we are a new person. And by the grace of God, I'm going to live a new life. And in my mind, it seems like it's that soft cushioning of Christianity to make it more palpable to those who don't want to take that step. And so it might turn people away, but that's what is the Word of God. And, and you know, I answered that question this last week, you know, is there another way people lie? Isn't there another way for us to be saved? Or or maybe they're just honestly inquisitive. Is there another way? You know, yeah. I don't even want to crack that door open mm-hmm. because you crack that door open and people start to explore. Well, maybe it's this. Maybe God did this. And 
And, you know, maybe we get to heaven someday and there was another way. I don't know, Adam, but I just don't see that in the scriptures. And mm-hmm. especially the way that it's framed here in Hebrews, it's, um, you know, this must be done is yeah. the way that he's framing it. Jesus had to take on flesh. He had to be fully human. He had to suffer. He had to propitiate. And, you know, there's just such a conviction wrapped up in that. Also, I mentioned Acts 4.12. There's there's no other way other than Christ yep. to be saved. And this is the way that we are saved through Christ, not another way. We are saved by putting our faith in his work on the cross, his his propitiating work on the cross. So, Exactly. And Israel thought they had another way and it never worked. The law didn't work. Yep. You could, even Peter says later on, it was a burden neither we nor our ancestors could bear. So if like you want another way, try the law. It's not going to work. And that still deals with sin. So you're never going to get around that. You're never going to have yep. have your cake and eat it too. Um, and of course, the thing is Hebrew that says this is a new and better way anyway. Yep. So, and as the text says, like you said, he had to take on flesh and blood. This had to be the way. And even Jesus in the garden said, if this cup could pass. But it, he said, not my will. And the Father, that was the Father's will. So praise God. Um you teased it in the sermon, and, and it gets into more in depth, but the Hebrews writer just kind of drops it right here and then kind of deviates, but he talks about Jesus as being the great high priest. Um, we know that there's a lot to that, especially as we delve into the Old Testament and the Levitical priesthood. Um, we know that also plays a role in propitiation and him atoning for our sin. Uh, aside from atonement, as we talked about, what can we talk about now? Not getting into too much, but how can Ooh. we how can we give a teaser, get people to anticipate those later chapters of Christ being our high priest? Yeah. Well, um, this is, gets into the realm of animal sacrifices and what took place in that Old Testament world. So close your ears, Alfie. We're going to talk <laughs> about this a little bit. Um, yeah, there were these these perpetual sacrifices offered in the Old Testament world. God set that out as a paradigm for them to show the the reality of sin and to give them a means by which to deal with with the guilt that they felt. And so, um, you know, they would bring there was a day of atonement where uh, the high priest would offer up a sacrifice once a year on behalf of all. So there were animal sacrifices throughout the year, different times or different. Offerings that you could bring. Leviticus kind of details some of these, uh, which were optional. But but one of the things that had to take place once a year was this. On this Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer up a sacrifice on behalf. It was like a catch-all mm-hmm. for everything else, all the other sins that the people were engaged in. And, and it had to happen every year. And uh, what Jesus does, and which, what's so amazing is it's fleshed out in the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus not only is a better high priest because the high priest would have to offer up a sacrifice for his own sins because he was a sinner too. Yep. Jesus is a sinless high priest, but it, there's even more. <laughs> Adam, you know, he's also the sacrifice. So yeah. he's the high priest and he's offering up the perfect sacrifice, a once for all sacrifice because yeah. the blood of bulls and goats can't ultimately take away sin. My pastor, when I was younger, he would talk about uh, the mercy seat and this this Old Testament ritual um, mm. as a credit card for the Old Testament people, hmm. that they would charge it to the future payment of Christ. Right. So, sure, these animals, you know, had um, 
a, a real role in that community in terms of sin, but but it, it wasn't complete and it wasn't perfect. Even though those animals were sinless, they weren't, you know, the incarnated God of the universe who took on flesh and died for, for our sins. So Jesus is dying in the New Testament um, didn't just pay for our sins. It also paid for the Old Testament Israelites. Right. Without his death, you know, the, the blood and bulls of goats, that doesn't ultimately uh, remove their sinfulness. Yeah. So I love that credit card language. That's mm. just a good analogy. Don't don't get carried away. Okay? We're talking <laughs> metaphor, not ontology. Metaphor, here. there you go. Um, so they, they put it on credit, basically, with those animal sacrifices. Jesus eventually paid the debt with his own sacrifice as our great high priest. What's interesting to me is how he does tease that. Hmm. And um, I think I had a footnote on this in my uh, manuscript, but... One of the commentators I read said that they must have been so familiar with this high priest language that he didn't even need to explain it at this point. So he just kind of uses it. So that's one theory that the author of Hebrews, this audience was so familiar, he just dropped the high priest language and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, we've heard that before. You know, Mm -hmm. either he's taught it there before or it was, you know, commonplace among the churches at that time. That's a possibility. Here's another possibility. And this this is something you might appreciate as a writer. Uh, Adam, there's isn't the term foreshadowing mm-hmm. when you kind of tease something yeah. uh, early in a in a work and mm-hmm. then you circle back with it later. So I'm more inclined to view that maybe they were familiar with this high priest language, but but maybe instead he's like, let me because I know this guy, whoever he was, Apollos or Paul, he's he was a good writer, skilled yeah. writer. Yeah. And so now he drops a little hint of something he's going to circle back with, a little foreshadowing. So it sticks in their mind yeah. as as something that, what what does that even mean? And then, mm-hmm. you know, he goes all in on this high priest um, the, uh, understanding and, and even has chapters written on it later yeah. in the book of Hebrews where it's fleshed out fully. So uh, great, great term, great concept, great theological reality that Jesus is not only a better high priest because he's sinless, but he's the better sacrifice offered by the high priest. Beautiful, wonderful imagery that is uh, significant in terms of our salvation and the the finished work. Mm -hmm. We don't need Jesus to go die every year on our behalf. It's it's once for all and, and it's done. There was a note you put down. I'm curious to hear you elaborate on this a little more. So those, if if you don't have the manuscript of the notes, you could download it and you'll see his footnotes, which is what we're kind of playing off of. You mentioned a quote by Luther that was too harsh because the, the scripture promises Christ delivered us from the fear of death. Yeah. We don't have to fear death. In fact, as you said, the worst part of death is the dying. Yeah. Because we have the hope of being with the Lord. But then Luther says this thing, he who fears death or is unwilling to die is not a Christian to a sufficient degree, which whatever that means, and you're not a Christian enough. And then he goes on and kind of talks about for those who fear death still lack faith in the resurrection since they love this life more than they love the life to come. And it seems like you you wrote, that's kind of common with Luther. Sometimes he sounds too harsh, but it, <laughs> your mind, it's hard to tell if he's being hyperbolic or not or what's going on with Luther. Um, thoughts. <laughs> well, Luther, he he's a preacher. Yeah, preachers sometimes hyperbolize. Yeah, occupational hazard. Yeah, I it, it is. 
So I know people, the reason I say that is because I know people who are legitimate Christians and they, they do have anxiety about death. Um, and, and maybe, maybe sinfully so that doesn't, their sin in that way doesn't make them unsaved. Uh, so I mean, the, the way Luther frames it there, it's like, if you ever, you know, are afraid of death and you yeah. know, there's something wrong with your faith yeah. or, yeah, I mean, it, there's, there's probably a challenge to some of us to get over our fear of death mm. if we, we are struggling with that. Um, you know, but even, you know, there have been Christians throughout the century who have, you know, died for their faith, who have demonstrated varying degrees of fear at different times. Mm. You know, not all of us, you know, are burned at the stake and say, you know, uh, Praise the Lord for for this. It's a uh, it's a sacrifice of praise offered to you. I, yeah. I forget how, what William Tyndale said, but he, it was something to that effect. Yeah. Increase the flames or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you know, and we're, that's inspiring because yeah. it's just unusual. There's another quote. I can't remember if it's in the footnotes or not, but Spurgeon says Spurgeon could be harsh too. He could hyperbolize as well. Mm. <laughs> Spurgeon talked about fear of death being understandable because we were not meant to die. We were meant to live forever uh, in this bliss that we call the Garden of Eden. And so far, part of the fallenness is this this fear of death that has overtaken us. So he's mm. more sympathetic yeah. to those who would have fear of death. Luther, on the other hand, is a little like, more harsh. Not even, yeah. If somebody did come to me, you know, pastorally and, you know, Pastor Tony, I'm just, I'm afraid, I'm afraid of death. I'm afraid of death. I... I do see that as a problem. Mm. Like, okay, let's walk through that. What are you afraid of? Mm. Are you afraid of suffering? You know, um, I get it. You know, do you, do you have cancer in your family? Do you have heart disease in your family? Do you have ALS? I watched my mother-in-law die of ALS, mm. and that was terrifying to see her body crippled. And and I, there's legitimate fear that would be associated with going through all of that before you go home to eternity. Or is it like... I'm not so sure after I die whether I'm really going to be in the presence of the Lord. I mean, mm-hmm. all right, well, where's your faith in that? Uh, do you uh, do you doubt God's word? Do you doubt these promises that he's given us? Let's kind of counsel you through this mm-hmm. truth so that you can embrace it fully. Um, that, that's how I would approach it if, if it manifested itself in, in a parishioner or, or something like that. Yeah. How have you processed that? Have you gone through periods of fear of death and what that might look like? Before I came to Christ, I was afraid of being left behind. You know, and that was before the Left Behind books. There were old, these cheesy movies from the 70s about the rapture. And that terrified me because I guess I was too young to think about death. Like, I'm never going to die. I'm 10 years old or whatever. (laughs) But that it was like the similar idea. Like, you're not you're you're doomed. And I think that was legitimate because I was not yet born again. I came to Christ at 15. Yeah. And then there was that assurance. Uh, I personally don't think I've had that fear. But from my point of view, if someone's struggling with that, it is legitimate. It would be some cases, they just need to be more schooled in the word, more familiar with scripture to help them understand it. Because like, when we drift from scripture, as I'm sure you've seen and experienced, and we get more bombarded with the thoughts of this world, it's easy to fall into that mindset. Of, mm-hmm. I'm just living for this life, and I've got bills to pay and mortgage, and what if I get sick, and what if I die? But then when we go back to God's Word and, and are refreshed and mm-hmm. our thoughts are realigned, that fear does tend to ebb because we realize how more solid and substantial and reliable God's assurance is in His Word. So I, that's how I always found 
confidence, you know, not in myself, not in my works, not in my own knowledge, but in his promises. I was going to say this, my dad, my dad was always good at these kind of like uh, quick sayings and witty, yeah. you know, he's, he's a Texan, so you might call him Texasisms, but he... <laughs> I asked him once when I was little, it's like, dad, are you afraid to die? I don't even know why that came up, you know? And my dad's like, you know, like most boys, he's my hero. Are you afraid mm-hmm. to die? <laughs> and he told me, no, son, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of aging. Mm. And I think that's right in the sense that that's the hard part of dealing with sin and dealing with the consequences of it on this side of the world. Yeah. You know, death, death is easy. Mm, yeah. You know, we we did a funeral this last Friday for uh, a member of our church. And, you know, um, she's in a coffin, her body, but, you know, she's in the presence of the Lord, or, you know, her yeah. spirit. So, I mean, it's rejoicing. It's it's celebration. She's not suffering anymore. Death is great for her. And and there was a sense even at that funeral that it was it was a celebration of her life and she had lived a long life. But uh, you, I've been to some funerals, though, where somebody dies early in life or, yeah. you know, um, it can be really rem- a lot of mourning and sad. And uh, it's harder on us than it is on the person that's dead. So death, death is easy. It's the dying. It's the aging. It's the uh, dealing with disease and the wearing out of our bodies. That's really hard. Yeah. So on that cheery note. We'll say goodbye. There's a lot more to come um, as we move through the book of Hebrews. Uh, This has been Footnotes. You can find all the um, episodes on vbvf.org. Also, our podcast, Verse by Verse Fellowship. Uh, Thank you, Pastor Tony, for being here. Yeah, happy Reformation Day, October 31st. Some people call it Halloween, (laughs) Halloween, but that's that's a misnomer. There's better stuff to celebrate. Yeah, so uh, (laughs) thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.